Now turn our attention into the study of God's Word, back to Romans chapter 5, and get to pick up in this last section here in Romans 5, 1 through 11, looking at the final verses in this section for us, verses 9 through 11 this morning. It's reminded of a statement I've heard before. Somebody say, I forgive the person who hurt me, but I never want to see him again. We know that sentiment, the idea somebody has sinned against us, and we're willing to let it go, we're willing to drop it, we're just unwilling to pursue restoration with that person. It'd just be better to move on, and our, our natural sentiment, it would be better just to move on, to never see them again. Because seeing them reminds us of the event. Seeing them reminds us of the difficulty, causes us to relive the pain, relive the suffering, and it is just easier to walk away from it all. To ignore it as if it never happened, to forget about it. But what is harder is to be restored to that person, to be reconciled to them to come together and to show a mutual love and a mutual support. I was reminded of an illustration this week or a news report I saw this week that the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, had written a letter to Putin and had given it to someone to deliver to him. And Putin had received it and uh, said to him, I'm not looking at this, I'm throwing it away in the trash. No desire to reconcile, no desire to find restoration, stubborn commitment towards a particular agenda. I think that often happens in the heart when we have been transgressed in some way and we feel hurt in some way. There is a stubborn opposition, a stubborn resistance to reconciliation and restoration. And this is normal to man. It is what man faces regularly. It's the temptation that we face every time someone sins against us. And yet I marvel at the riches of God's kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Because I think if there was anyone who had the right to turn his back on us, it would be God. If anyone who could say, all right, I will save you, but... I will leave you there on earth and I will remain in heaven away from you. God could do that. If there was anyone who could say, yeah, you denied me, you denied my ways, you rejected my purposes, you stubbornly resisted the truth, you even made me your enemy. You hated me and you hated my ways, you hated my design, you hated my purposes. So yeah, I will be merciful to you because I am a God of mercy and I will be loving to you, but I will leave you over there. We would expect that, but that's not what God did or does. God brings us to himself. God restores us to him, to be reconciled to him and to enjoy once again what we used to have before the fall, a relationship of Mutual joy, a relationship of encouragement, of blessing. 
Paul draws our attention to the riches of this marvelous work here in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is Paul thinking through the implications of the gospel and its benefits upon us. Because we understand conflict and we understand that conflict divides and separates, it's in light of that darkness, in light of that contrast, that the gospel shines brightly. There are broken relationships that come because of sin. There is separation. When one sins against us, we are caused to drift apart. But rarely do we think about the importance of pursuing reconciliation and restoration. In American history, there is two families known as the Hatfields and the McCoys back in the 1800s. The two families were at war with each other for at least 25 years. And during that time, there was intense conflicts. There was murderers. There was uh, stabbings, hatred, slander, murderous uh, intents against both families. It all started in 1865 with the death of Asa McCoy by a local militia where certain Hatfields were members of. And from there, it kept spilling over for the next 25 years, ultimately boiled down to an event <clears throat> that led to the, the death of a, three of the Hatfield, <clears throat> or three of the McCoy uh, family members on Hatfield land. They were eventually prosecuted for that and sent off to prison. Finally, the two families just went their own way never resolving the conflict, never restoring. They just dropped it because they recognized this was too much. That, I think, is the natural response to the human heart. It's, all right, you're just not worth my energy anymore. I'm going to walk away. That's the natural response in the human heart towards conflict. But that's not the Christian's heart. That's not God's work. God's example is that, as we see here even in Romans 5, notice in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's work is that while we are in this state of active rebellion, as verse 6 indicates, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, at the right place, at the right, according to God's perfect purposes, God demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's, mark, God's work is remarkably lovely, it's remarkably sacrificial. The work of God demonstrated towards those who were his enemies is a kind of work that is, again, supernatural. It's different than us. Because God seeks this. He seeks to reconcile and restore. He seeks to take that which is broken and bring restoration to it. And we who are helplessly lost, we who are on the outside, are the benefactors of the rich love of God because He brought us in. 
And we now, as again, his people who have been redeemed by him, get to go show that very love to others. And we would say, let it certainly start in our homes and may it go beyond that. Why? Because this is the reflection of God's love to us. God showed his great love to us. And Paul has been in this section particularly, has been giving us the implications of the gospel. He has been unfolding it for us. As I told you back in verse 1 and verse 9, there are two phrases there, uh, participial phrases, having been justified. These two phrases are tying in and giving explanation to what Paul has previously said having been justified by faith, and then he builds some implications. Verse 9, having been justified, and then he goes on and builds some more implications. He is giving us his reflection on the gospel, his meditations. And in his meditations and reflections on the significance and the beauty of the gospel, he's been drawing out some implications for us, which shows us the beauty of this message in which the Christian is under obligation to proclaim. You too, the sinner, the rebellious one, you too, the unrighteous, can be reconciled to God. And you can be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, there are these benefits. The first in which we saw a few weeks ago, the justification grants to the believer a life-transforming peace with God through Jesus Christ. You can have peace with God. You can no longer fear His wrath. You can no longer fear His judgment. You can no longer fear death. You can wait with great anticipation for the glory of God to be revealed because you have peace with God. The second benefit is that justification energizes the believer's worship and practice and in principle. You can have a doctrinal basis and even an energizing confidence in pursuing life through your afflictions and difficulties, knowing, <clears throat> knowing that it leads to hope. God will build you up and transform you and you can persevere and have assurance because of the work of the gospel. All of that then leads us to this final benefit, and it's seen in verses 9 through 11, which we look at this morning. Justification anchors the believer's hope of salvation in the gift of reconciliation with God. <clears throat> Justification reminds us that we have been reconciled with God. Notice again in verse 9 through 11, here's what Paul writes. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This is Paul's now drawing our attention to this final benefit, this benefit of reconciliation. So 
Salvation is so much more than just simply God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's so much more than God is going to bring you peace and prosperity in life. The so much more is that you and I, who once were far away, you and I, who once were on the outside, active enemies of God, have been brought near to Him so that we can stand in the very presence of God. We can come before Him and delight in the riches of His glory. Now, I want to make two observations before we walk through these uh, three verses here. The first observation is this. Paul makes a distinction between two aspects of justification. He looks at justification and he gives us two distinctions. Notice again verse 1. Having been justified, and notice the modifying phrase there, by faith. We've been justified by faith. Now, jump down to verse 9. Having now been justified, and notice the modifying phrase there, by his blood. Two modifying phrases here, two distinctions that he is looking at within the doctrine of justification. One, he talks about the means of justification. It is by faith. And then in verse 9, he talks about the instrument of justification. It is by his blood. I think the phrase there is the preposition N. It's in his blood. We are justified in his blood. That is the instrumental cause of justification. It is the blood of Christ. Paul has been making this and stating this, but here he is now kind of categorizing the implications based on these two distinctions in justification. If you turn back to chapter 3, you notice in chapter 3 and verse 25, he, does, he says the, makes the same distinction there in verse, uh, verse 24 and 25. Being justified as a gift by the grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And now verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, notice, in his blood through faith. The two distinctions that he draws out, that of his blood and that of faith. Those two distinctions, you also just remember in our scripture reading this morning in Ephesians 2 in verse 13, Paul draws out that same distinction. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. Why? How? By the blood of Christ. Paul thinks specifically about the work of the blood of Christ as he also thinks specifically about the work of faith. He draws out the distincting, distinctive elements here. That's why, as I told you back when we were back in Romans 5, verse 1 there, I told you here that Romans 5, 1, the therefore, is not referring simply back to what he just stated in chapter 4, but it refers all the way back to what he started to talk about of justification back in, verses, in chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. Paul is reflecting on the gospel reflecting on its on the implications for us. And here's basically what he said. We are justified by faith. 
And from verse 1 through verse 8, here's what it means for us. It means we have peace with God. By faith, we have peace with God. And by faith, we embrace Christ. And by faith, we stand with an exalting confidence in the hope of God's glory. And by faith, we move from affliction to endurance, to proving character, to hope. And it's by faith we embrace the difficult work of afflictions. All of that is the work of faith. We endure through afflictions by faith. But here in verses 9 through 11, he talks about the implications of being justified in his blood, which are what? He tells us in verse 9, we are saved from the wrath of God. He tells us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, verse 10. Verse 10, we are saved by his life. And in verse 11, we exult in reconciliation. The blood of Christ, the atonement, the the sacrifice of Christ, the propitiation has implications for us as well. This is not, and just listen carefully, this is not Paul creating an order to salvation here. Let's not get confused and, and make such distinctions that we confuse our soteriology. Because you uh, notice in uh, there isn't a particular order because he talked about faith first. That's more important than atonement or atonement was more important than faith. That, that's not what's happening. He's just drawing out the distinctions. He's not creating a process. He's not making a, a, a doctrinal truth here about salvation. He's just drawing out the implications for us. So that Paul is making a distinction between justification by faith and justification in his blood. Not making two ways of salvation or prioritizing one. He's just drawing out the distinctions for us to reflect on it. I was thinking about that and uh, I was reminded of the Twix commercial. You've probably seen the Twix commercial where you got two candy shops and you have the left Twix candy shop and the right Twix candy shop and they're both arguing about which side was most important, you know, which candy was more significant. And of course, you know, the, they're the same. I thought, you know, that's similar to this idea of justification here. There is no distinction there is no distinction between, or, or no difference. There's no difference between the right Twix and the left Twix. But there is a distinction. It's the same thing within justification. There is no difference between justification by faith and justification in His blood. There is no difference, but yet there is a distinction. And it is that distinction that Paul draws out often in his writings. As I pointed out, it happens in Ephesians chapter 2. It is here in, in Romans chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 5. He draws out these distinctions so that we see the riches of the work of God for us. But there's a second observation I want to draw your attention to. And the second observation is this. And this before we jump into the verses... The second observation is Paul speaks of salvation in a past tense and a future tense. Notice here in 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith. And then in verse 9, having been justified, both of those are in the aorist. An aorist is a, basically a historical action. It is a completed action. Speaking of a historical action, something that has taken place. Those who have been justified... But notice uh, verse 10. 
It says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled than this phrase, we shall be saved by His life. That phrase actually is in the future. It's literally this, we will be saved by His life. It's future tense that he emphasizes here. In fact, even in verse 9 is another one. Um, we haven't been justified by His blood. The phrase, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. There's actually a future tense there. It is, we will be saved from the wrath of God. We have been saved. We we have been justified and we will be saved. Paul shows us the present benefits of the gospel and even gives us the future benefits of the gospel. We who are presently walking in faith, presently who enjoy peace with God, who presently embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we who exalt in the anticipation of the coming of the glory of God, we who face afflictions with perseverance, proving character, having increasing hope, we who endure with sound doctrine, having believed that sound doctrine, anticipate something yet to come, something yet future where we will be saved from the wrath of God and we will be saved by His life. We live in a, theologians have called an already not yet. We have been saved, but we are anticipating what we're going to fully be saved from. We have a completed and yet a, a redemption that is not, or a redemption that's incomplete. Not incomplete because God has lacked something. Not incomplete because God is, has incomplete work, but incomplete because it has not fully yet been revealed all that God is going to do and accomplish. So that's how the Christian lives. He lives in this present tension of having been saved from God's wrath and anticipating that day when we're going to be fully delivered. Now let's jump into this text. Those are two observations of Paul's work here of the gospel. Notice what he says here to kind of conclude and build this, this great joy, the beauty and benefit of the gospels. We have been reconciled to God. We're living in now this awareness of justification that this, the sacrifice of Christ and laying himself down has brought us to God, reconciled us. We have been past tense justified and future tense saved from. Notice uh, what verse 9 says. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are saved from God's wrath. The word wrath there is the word orge. It is the speaking of God's judgment. The outpouring of his wrath. It is a phrase that, a word that is used often in Romans. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 18, the word is used there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That is this word, orge. 
God's judgment, the outpouring of his fury, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There's a particular emphasis here that wrath is reserved for those who are in rebellion to the word of God. The rebellion to God himself, who, as the text indicates in verse 18, are suppressing the truth. Turn over to chapter 2 of Romans. The word comes out again in chapter 2 and in verse 15, or verse 5 actually. It says, but because of your stubbornness and, notice, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Again, twice the word orge is used there, and he gives us, again, the context for why this orge is increasing. It is because of their own stubbornness and lack of repentance. The wrath is increasing. That's the idea, storing up there. You're just preparing it, adding to it. For what? A particular day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is, again, this wrath to come. This wrath which comes upon sin and unrepentance. Notice chapter 3 in verse 5. It says this, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Again, this is a description of God's pouring out his judgment upon unrighteousness. Turns over to chapter 4 and verse 15. What feeds this increased judgment? Paul tells us there. 4.15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. It is the righteous standard of God, the law, which reveals and, and justifies the wrath of God. When one transgresses the law, transgresses God's way, God's wrath is increased. This is why he even goes on, even in chapter 12, verse 19, says, leave room for the wrath of God, Romans 12, 19. So here in Romans 5, in verse 9, when he speaks of save from the wrath of God, <clears throat> he is speaking of being saved from that final judgment of God. That judgment upon wickedness, that judgment that will come at a particular day, that judgment which will bring again, ultimately escalate up to the return of Christ. It is that wrath that we are saved from, Romans 5, 9. And Paul is again here emphasizing in Romans 5, 9 that, the, that this wrath, this eschatological judgment, this condemnation, the believer does not fear. The wicked should fear this. The wicked who oppress, who suppress the truth, the one who is unrighteous in their pursuit should fear this because this is what God has said. He will bring this kind of judgment on unrighteousness. But that's not for the believer. The believer is motivated by something entirely different. There is an implication by this is that we no longer live as those who've embraced the gospel by faith. 
those who've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have peace with God, those who, who are practicing the walk of faith are motivated by the fear of wrath. We are not living under this anticipation of wrath any longer because verse 9 indicates to us we have been saved or we will be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. We will be delivered. What motivates us then now? I think that's where we go back to verses 6 through 8. We no longer live under the threat of condemnation and of judgment. Unless, of course, our heart is filled with unbelief. Unless, of course, we do not believe the gospel and we've turned away, then we should live under that fear. But for those who embrace Christ by faith, we live under a different motivation, and that motivation is revealed to us in verses 6 through 8. Now, I made this connection last week in second service, and I want to make it clear to both services, that I believe verses 6 through 8 are the most encouraging words for our sanctification, the, the most powerful words that remind us of the sanctifying work of God and motivation. Notice that Paul begins in verse 6 there, for while we were still helpless. This is an explanation here is the motivation for us. And what he, what he previously stated in verses, again, four, uh, or verse 3 through verse 5 is that process of moving from afflictions to hope, that process of bearing up under affliction, enduring under it, moving to a proven character, which gives us assurance and confidence. And then the explanation for why you endure through all this is because while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The sanctifying grace of knowing the propitiatory work of Christ, the sacrificial work of Christ, is what motivates us to persevere in the pursuit of godliness. We're not motivated by the fear of wrath, because that wrath has been covered in Jesus Christ. We are, as verse 9 says, we will be saved from his wrath. But we are motivated by the awareness of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. While we were unlovely, he sacrificed himself. While we were hostile towards him, God demonstrated his own love towards us. While it was difficult, he was caring for us. So that we are motivated now as believers by this sense of God's expressed love towards us. And we seek to reflect that back. The Lord Jesus Christ's example is our motivation. Because we have and will be saved from his wrath. The believer now again is motivated by the awareness of what God has done for us. 
Listen, this is where we work in our hearts. If we are in unbelief, we remind ourselves of the wrath of God is for the ungodly, for unbelief. It is for those who reject and for those who oppose. But if you believe, then it is the love of God that motivates and encourages. Because what God has sacrificed, and we reflect what He has demonstrated towards us. Back into verse 10. He adds to this case then, not only is the believer by the justified by his blood, and we are rejoicing that we are saved from the wrath of God, but then he builds on to this case, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We are saved by his life. There's the second aspect that we build on here. It is the life of Christ that gives us hope. Now there's a, a lot. There are different interpretations on, the, on this. What does it mean to be saved by the life of Christ? Some have said to be saved by the life of Christ means that we are saved by His perfect obedience when He came into this world. When He came in and he was baptized in you know, Matthew chapter 3, and John the Baptist asked him why you need to be baptized, and he said, permit it so as to fulfill all righteousness. It's said by theologians that here, here Jesus was living our life for us. He was repenting for us. He was walking in perfect obedience for us. He obeyed the law in every way for us. So it is the perfect life of Christ which is credited to our account, and it is that righteousness whereby we stand before God. That's one possible interpretation of what it means to be, as verse 10 indicates, we will be saved by his life. The other possible interpretation would be that we are saved by the work of Christ as our mediator. Christ is standing before God the Father, interceding on our behalf. Kind of like John chapter 17, where Jesus was praying for his people Or John chapter 10, when Jesus says, All those in the Father gives to me, I lose none of them. Or as 1 John 2 and verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate there is the idea of one who is our our divine defense attorney. The one who protects and defends his people. So the idea in that case is that Jesus is acting because of his life now. He is acting as our safeguard. But I think there's a better answer and it's found within our context here. There's a better answer. And the better answer, while all of those are true doctrines, and if we were in Matthew's Gospel or we were in you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and we we're looking at the righteousness of God credited to us, or if we were in other texts, we could point to those truths. But what does this text indicate to us? I think the phrase there, by his life, refers to the resurrection. How do we know that? Because at the end of chapter 4, that's what... We are told, the end of chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, he says that. Notice what he says there. 
But for our sake, this is verse 23, it's not written for his sake only, but it was written for our sake that it was credited to him. But for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, notice, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and notice, and was raised because of our justification. Paul has tied here then the resurrection to justification. What, what evidence, what made justification possible was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when Christ was raised from the dead, it demonstrated that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It satisfied the wrath of God. And it is from that context that Paul then comes and draws an implication for us here in verse 10. Because Jesus Christ has been resurrected. Because he has borne the wrath, because he has shed his blood, and because he has been raised from the dead, we will be saved. The power of God which demonstrated in Christ, this is what Paul basically says in Ephesians chapter 1, the power of God demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that power is at work in us, that we will be saved. This is the second truth that he draws out, which leads us to the final one that he draws our attention to. And through verse uh, 10 and 11 there, You notice the phrases there in 10 and 11 about reconciliation. Notice, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We have been reconciled. This is the final beautiful benefit of God's gospel, the gospel of God, of justification. We have been reconciled to God. This word is significant for us to understand because it's not just the ceasing of hostility. We can understand just two parties putting arms down and walking away and saying, okay, we've just ended the hostility That's not the idea here. It's more than that. It's more than just simply putting down arms. It's more than just walking away and going into your own places. It's more than ignoring the problem. It has the idea of restoring a mutually beneficial relationship. That's reconciliation. Restoring a relationship where two parties are mutually benefiting one another. That is to be reconciled. And to be restored. And again, as I said, when we were just thinking about the introduction to this whole series, if God wanted to simply save us, but then remain in heaven and hide away from us, where we never got to see him again, he could have easily have done that. But that's not how God speaks about reconciliation. We are reconciled to him. And we, as the verse 11 indicates, we exalt in God. We get to, get to rejoice in Him. We have this bold confidence in Him. It's undeserved because even as the text has indicated uh, here in verse 10, it was while we were enemies. 
he reconciled us. While we were hostile, while we were engaged in evil deeds, while we were in the acts of rebellion, he was pursuing reconciliation. We were restored. Not simply putting down arms, it was embraced and brought near to him. Again, think of the terms that God calls his people by. We are called hagias, holy ones. We were called children of God. We are brothers and sisters of one another. We enjoy a mutually beneficial relationship where there is reconciliation and restoration, where we are the family of God. Because this is the benefit of Christ's work, of his personal sacrifice. This is the beauty of justification, that it is all those whom God has saved and brought together, we share the love of God to one another, demonstrating that we are of the family of God. Because God has brought us to himself and reconciled us to himself. Think about the benefits of this. This means now that you can pray and God hears you. This means now that you anticipate a day in which you will see God. This is a day in which you will come and freely worship Him, along with the saints of old, and along with the angels of heaven. You will corporately gather in praise and adoration to the living God. And we will receive the rich benefits of His grace, enjoying His eternal life, and enjoying His, the inheritance which He has prepared for us. We will share in a mutual beneficial relationship where all hostilities have been put aside. Why? Because we have been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not in hostility, we're in peace, we're not in war. We're pursuing love. We're not living in animosities trying to undermine. We're living in a reconciled grace that is enjoying the mutual benefits where we can say we exalt in God, verse 11. That's not our enemy. He's our boast. He's our confidence. He's not one we live under fear of. He's the one we love and appreciate because he has loved us beyond what we can ask or imagine. These are the implications of the doctrine of the gospel of God that God has reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus Christ. So that we live now no longer living in fear of wrath. We live now with an ever-increasing joy for what he has done for us. An ever-increasing love and appreciation for him because he has allowed us to be reconciled to him. And yet, Christian, we, we don't fully yet realize what this is. We don't even, we're, we've been told of this benefit, but yet we are waiting kind of eagerly for the fullness of it, for the privilege and joy of it. We live in this, this stage in which we're waiting for the completion of this very thing. God himself will reveal his glory and we will be there enjoying it and have no fear. We're not shrinking away in, in fear of his judgment. 
though one in their right mind ought to. We know the love of God poured out upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we anticipate it. So as we think about this, in conclusion, this should impact all our relationships. We shouldn't have relationships where we are not pursuing reconciliation. We shouldn't write them off. Now, we can pursue reconciliation and the other party has to do their part, but we ought to be doing our part in the process. Where we show forgiveness, we ought to be showing forgiveness. Where we need to repent, we ought to be demonstrating repentance so that there would be the rich benefits of reconciliation and restoration. All of this because we are reflecting the work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that we have embraced. This is what motivates us now. It motivates us to live like the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. I pray that the riches of this gospel will permeate our body here at Saving Grace Bible Church. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the work of Christ and for Paul's time to sit down and write this out and help us think about the riches of your work. May we always be reflecting on this and encouraged by these truths and motivated so that the beauty of Christ would be in all of our relationships. Most certainly, may it start in our homes, may it start in our relationship with our spouse, may it start with our relationship with our children, may it start between siblings, where there's a demonstration of your love and favor poured out, and then may it expand to those who come within our circles of influence. We desire to show your love and kindness. May all people enjoy what we enjoy. We have peace with God. We believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in anticipation of a hope. We persevere in the pursuit of godliness and we are motivated by the great example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his death, we don't fear wrath, but we live in anticipation and confidence in God because we've been made children of God and heirs and we've been brought near. So may these truths flood our hearts and minds regularly so that it's in our conversation and it's in our actions. Thank you for the reminder. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.